Hi folks, welcome to the World War Station podcast with myself and World War II explorer Lawrence Waller. In season two, episode 11, we turn our attention to looking at one of Britain's most iconic wartime aircraft in the form of the Avro Lancaster, as this month marks the anniversary of its first operational flights with RAF Bomber Command during the Second World War in March 1942. Today we're talking with historian and author Steve Darlow to learn more about this aircraft, its service and operation history, as well as some of those who crewed the Lancaster, including his own grandfather's experiences. If you wish to help support the World Station podcast by becoming a supporter on Patreon, you can get directly involved with the podcast with questions you wish to be answered and have your say on topics you wish to hear discussed. And that's just the beginning. Discover more today by visiting our Patreon page, patreon.com slash ww2nationhq. The link is in the bio below. Thanks very much for your support. Anyhow, without further ado, let's dive right into our latest instalment here on the World Nation podcast. So Steve, welcome to the show. Um, it's great to have you with us here today. Maybe we just sort of dive into sort of where did your interest in the Lancaster come from? Well, thank you. <clears throat> thank you for having me uh, with you today. And um, well, yes, it's a family connection that really got me interested in, in the Lancaster. It was a uh, Quite a few years ago now that my grand my father showed me a photograph of the wreckage of a lancaster strewn across a field in belgium and um i knew that my grandfather had been a pilot with bomber command but didn't know too much of the story and that uh, that photograph really got got me more interested in and developed from there to research his story so that was arthur darla he was a pilot with a 427 squadron initially he was on halifax's um, and then he became a pathfinder with 405 Squadron uh, based at Gransden Lodge and shot down in May 1944, survived and became uh, a prisoner of war. Then we had his logbook and um, I was able to meet some of his crew because sadly he went missing in 1947. But I met some of his crew and put a, put his story together and fortunately, Grub, fortunately Grub Street published it as Lancaster Down. Um, from then on, I just developed an interest in... in uh, Bomber Command and, and the Lancaster and of course the Lancaster is the main representation we have now of of the Bomber Command story in regards to flying there obviously there are other aircraft in museums but the Lancaster is the only one that's um the, the only heavy bomber four engine bomber that, that's flying so the one in in this country and, and the one in Canada and um I just wanted to know more about it and in particular I'm particularly interested in the human stories that aspect of um, the Lancaster and, and Bomber Command, and have been fortunate over the years to have met so many, so many veterans and and hear their stories and be able to record their stories and and also to um, to publish their stories. Well, you're absolutely right there. I think the Lancaster is an absolutely iconic uh, wartime aircraft for Britain, and as you say, seeing that in the air, those Merlin engines, it's got such, <laughs> such a powerful thing, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It, it, and it, it captivates crowds. And so I've been to so many air shows where everything stops when the Lancaster came over. I remember back uh, when the um, Canadian Lancaster came over and I was standing there with Charles Clark, who was a bomber on Lancaster, and Jeff Packham, who was a pilot on Lancs. And we were down at Eastbourne watching watching the two Lancasters come over and just the the emotions that are with it. And it's all it's all enhanced by the amount of stories that I know that are behind it and what it represents and what 
what the symbolism of that, that air, aircraft is. And the, the BBMF Lancaster has got the plaque on the side and the, the, the guys who fly every time they go in, they give that a tap uh, that remembers the 55,573 aircrew um, that were killed. And of course, they weren't just Lancasters. I think, you know, it's important to say that Lancaster that's flying is a representative of, of the story of, of, of Bomber Command. Well, before we sort of go into the story behind the Lancaster's conception and manufacture, maybe we could just sort of touch on your grandfather's experiences and those some of those human stories and people you've spoken with. And maybe you can tell us a little bit more about his experience. And you sort of, you also mentioned there the fact you'd spoken to his crew. What 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 were their impressions of your grandfather and you know their experiences with him? Well, they. Uh... I don't know, this is bragging. They spoke very, very highly of him. They thought he was um, he was an excellent pilot. Um, so he did half half a tour at uh, on a, on a Halifax. He's at four two seven squadron, and then was selected for Pathfinders. Went to went to Grandson Lodge, and he was on his thirtieth his thirty second operation actually, because he did two second dicky ops initially. So he was on his thirty second operation. Um, when he was he was shot down and we they were attacked by a night fighter uh, the aircraft was on fire was 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 set on fire and um it was believed that the rear gunner don copeland was was killed in the attack um, but then arthur was able to hold the aircraft while while the crew got out and he was the last one out of the aircraft um and he spent the night hidden by some people in the village of bon secours uh, which is actually just on the French-Belgian border. And then he, he was uh, at great risks themselves. And we were fortunate uh, when I was researching Lancaster Down to go and meet those that, that hid him and actually um, go into the room where he was hidden and spent the night. But the next day they'd been, they'd been betrayed and, uh, and he, was, he was captured and was taken off to, to Stalagluff III. Um, he arrived there just after the, the Great Escape happened. Um, so he arrived there in May, May 1944 and was there until uh, January 45 when the camp was evacuated. He he wasn't one of the part of the group that marched off to Luckenwald. He actually went down south because he had been injured. Um, but unfortunately, he, he stayed in the, the Royal Air Force and in 1947. He was a passenger on D Dakota in the Far East and was uh, went missing over the South China Sea. So we didn't know him. We had his logbook in his diary. But I was able to meet um, Alec Nethery, a, a Canadian who served with him and who, who told us the stories. Trevor Upton is, is very charismatic uh, mid-upper gun. I mean, he was 18, Trevor, when he was on operations. I don't, you know, this is the thing about, you hear about these guys, they weren't even allowed to drive a car at this stage. And there they were uh, in a four-engine bomber over Germany. And we met his, his wireless operator um, as well. Trevor ended up as a prisoner of war. Uh, Alan Bur Alec Burrell was the wireless operator he, he um also prisoner of war and then alec was able to evade capture so it was, it was fantastic to meet them and have have um uh, their tell, tell their stories of what their experiences were with arthur and then that and, and piece piece his story together and there's and that was my first experience of that crew bond that you with all lancaster crews all air crews that you come across very much there is a bond between those those air crew and when they get together all the old stories come out and the the, the dirty jokes come out and all that kind of stuff. They become young boys again, which is quite wonderful to see. I think there's something very special about also the way that you mentioned there about the, the crewing up 
the way that they do it in the RAF, I remember Rusty saying this, but the way they crewed up was quite unique, wasn't it? Absolutely, and um, seems to have been very effective. So they would get together the various trades, um, at operational training unit. So at the OTUs, they were, let's take a typical example. So the OTUs, they were on, on Wellington bombers, so they need to get the five five crew together. So put into a hangar and pretty much said, said uh, right, sort yourselves out into a crew. So you'd have a group of uh, air gunners, a group of bomb aimers, group of uh, wireless operators, the, the pilots and the navigators. And they'd go around and have a look and say, well, don't like the look of him or quite like the look of him. And uh, and that's how they'd formed up. Maybe they'd met up on, on the train on the way there before to make some kind of connection like that. Um, but yes, that's how the, the crews were formed. At, at OTU on the Wellingtons, they'd have the, the crew of five. Um, and then they'd, they would be picking up their flight engineer at the heavy conversion unit and uh, the second air gunner uh, to go into the mid-upper type uh, heavy conversion unit um, where they would be transferring from the twin engine onto the, the four engines of whichever Sterling, Halifax or Lancaster um, that they were going to go on. But yes, quite haphazard, but they... It seems to have worked, and veterans do, do seem to say that, that it that it worked and was successful. But of course, you've always got in the mind that you're talking to the guys who survived. <laughs> so for them, it did work uh, in the in the main. Um, but yes, uh, quite quite a way of putting your, your crew together that you were going to rely on um, in the air. And then it was very much a, a case of building up that teamwork, building up that trust in each other. Um, uh, in doing your job to the best of your abilities because you're all, all reliant upon each other. Well, we'll definitely touch on that later. Um, and I'm sure this is probably something you want to touch on probably more at the end, but you mentioned at the beginning the RAF BBMF Lancaster. Maybe you could tell us just a little bit more about that iconic aircraft um, that we see flying the skies today. And also, I think that's a lovely tribute. I didn't know that they had the plaque inside the aircraft. Yeah, uh, just outside on the door, as they get in, they tap it, um, which gives them that that connection um, that, that they need. Um, that, that, that they have, they all have within the, the memorial flight. You, you, you always say they treat veterans fantastically well. Um, they really do, and they, they they know what they're they're actually um, representing. I mean, I iconic is that what what is that word? I iconic. Um, I was actually at a, a church a couple of weeks ago and there was a display there and it said a, a definition of icon, uh, an icon was a window into a kingdom. Well, that's sort of very apt for this because this, the, the Lancaster, the PA474 BVMA, it is that window into that kingdom, if you like, of Bomber Command, of the experiences of the crew. And when, when you're looking at uh, the Lancaster that's flying, um, you can wonder at it as a as a as an aircraft and the design that's gone into it being an aircraft but also it's a weapon um that, that's job was to deliver explosives and would would be killing people um but it's a, it's a symbol of of hope to people in the occupied territories during the war that the war was being taken to germany that there was reason to carry on the fight um but, and to others, it's a, it, it symbolises loss that there's some someone in their family that, who who made the ultimate sacrifice and didn't didn't come back. So it has it, it represents 
so much of the Second World War, of the aspects of the Second World War, and that, that's that's what what makes it such a such an iconic aircraft. Well, let's turn our attention to the kind of the story behind the conception and creation and manufacture of the Avro Lancaster as we know it today. Because I mean, it came so close to being a non-starter, didn't it? Really. Well, it did. Yes. I mean, I think probably the the, the starting point we should go look at is the um, the Air Ministry specification, so P P thirteen thirty six, um, which was a requirement that went out for a, a twin engine media bomber, twin engine medium bomber for, for worldwide use is the term they use. Um, and in response to that, the Avro Aircraft Company they worked up the design of the Manchester twin engine bomber. Uh, and the first Manchester operations came about in February 1941, but very quickly um, there were engine, engine problems became apparent. And uh, the Manchester was uh, not going to be, be fit for purpose. But Roy Chadwick had already been working on improvements to the design of the Manchester extend the wing length, add two more engines. Um, and in fact, the first Manchester Mark III, which became the Lancaster, flew in on the 9th of January in, in 1941. And it, it was described by the, the test pilot as being just right from the start. Um, and Sir Arthur Harris, who became uh, Commander-in-Chief of Bomber Command in February 1942, I mean, he, he states in his memoir, post-war memoir, that without exception, it, it was the finest bomber of the war. And I think it's very difficult to uh, to argue against that. I'm sure some of my Halifax friends and Mosquito friends might might try and argue, but I do think it was indeed the finest bomber. And once it, it, it proved its worth, um, then it was a case of getting it into production um, as, as quickly as possible and building up the capabilities uh, of, of Bomber Command. And what was the issue with the engines? Because when they originally fitted on the Manchester, was it, I'm trying to remember the name of the engines, but then they switched to the Merlins for the Lancaster, and that was a, that was a big difference, wasn't it? That made the big difference. Yeah, so when the Manchester came, started flying operationally, there were um, well, less than two months um, afterwards. They were, they were being grounded because there were... Uh, all these engine failures, I think it was through the engine bearings, all these failures. And then another grounding took place. Um, another grounding of all the aircraft took place. So the unserviceability of the, the Vulture engines um, was forcing the, the bomber squadrons to, to be taken off, off frontline duties. And of course, that was clearly unacceptable and something needed to be done about it. But fortunately, Chadwick had already been looking at the addition of two more engines. Um, the Rolls-Royce Merlin engines, and that made a much more reliable aircraft. If we look at the Lancaster itself, maybe you can sort of talk us through, I mean, I've been up to East Kirkby um, a few years back now and spoke with Andrew Panton, because they're trying to rebuild, sorry, rebuild might be the wrong term, make the Lancaster they have there airworthy again. And going inside thing, this thing, it, it, you can't really get an appreciation until you actually clamber in. It's like a reverse TARDIS is the best way of describing it. Maybe you sort of take <laughs> us through the the Lancaster, its layout, what it was like for the crews, you know, it's um, the different positions and responsibility. That'd be 
fantastic to be able to hear that. Yeah, so um, that's a good description. Reverse TARDIS. I've heard that description before. Really. Um, so yeah, so if we enter in the door that's in the in in the fuselage, um, you, you turn left and you go to the to the rear turret. Um, and I've been in the, the BBMF Lancaster, and uh, I'm six foot four. So the chances of me getting into that rear turret were, were nil. I could just about get my legs legs in that turret. But you can imagine the um, being in this small confined space. You're there for could be could be eight hours. And as one one air gunner said to me, he said you'd be the first to take off, and you'd be the last to land in the crew. There's obviously the tail lifting off, and then as as they're coming down. So that's so you've got the rear turret. So then if you turn and you go back up up the fuselage, you get up to the to the mid upper turret, um, giving uh, the air gunner the opportunity to to view around the aircraft because the two gunners are the, the first line of defense. There's a saying that they were the eyes and the sting. Um, and the, the main tactic would be to try and avoid combat with the, the 303 bullets, some described as being pea shooters. Uh, so try and avoid combat, see where the enemy is, and then you give your instructions to the pilot to corkscrew to take the aircraft into this corkscrew maneuver evasive action so you've got your two two air gunners then as you move forward you climb over the the main spar and you as you do that you have a real appreciation of the, the cramped space that, that you're in i've heard many veterans say to me if you're gonna if you're gonna go to war in a bomber you want to go in a lancaster but if you're gonna get shot down you probably want to be in a halifax because it was more spacious and afforded you more of a chance of getting out so you go over the main spine, you get to the wireless operator's position. And then just ahead, ahead of that, then you've got the navigator with his, with his tables where he'd have all these paraphernalia uh, to work out routes. And then to the right, as you get to the cockpit area, to the right, you've got the flight engineer with all his dials and panels who are responsible for monitoring what's happening with the, with the four engines of the aircraft. Then you've got the pilot, slightly raised up sitting there in, in, with his seat and then uh, at the front you've got the the bomb aimer uh, in the the nose position uh, with with the bomb site whose obviously job was to to put the bomb uh, on on the respective uh, target so you've got your seven man crew which is the the, the pretty standard crew for a, a a Lancaster bomber you could have an sometimes there were eight in the crew you might have a second dicky someone a new pilot getting experience you might have for example we mentioned Rusty Warman earlier Rusty was was in 101 squadron which operated airborne cigars so he would have a German speaking airman on there who'd be broadcasting out to uh, the German night fighters giving them uh, duff information um and you, you, you may have some of the pathfinders may have an, uh, someone working an H2S um, 2S or some of the extra navigation material, but generally it was a, a seven man, man crew. And they would come together at heavy conversion unit, not necessarily on, on, on Lancasters because Sir Arthur Harris was very keen for his Lancasters to be in the frontline squadrons. So they could often do their heavy conversions on maybe Stirlings or maybe Halifaxes. And then perhaps later, or for example, they could go to a, 
the Lancaster finishing school to prepare uh, for the Lancaster. And it was, it was there that they would start to, to develop that teamwork that would get them through, uh, through operations. You know, the job, they'd say that the job, their job for the, for the Royal Air Force was to get the bombs to the target. And then once they dropped the target, get themselves back home was, the, was clearly the, the priority that they'd done their job. And, uh, you know, the navigators will claim that they were the most important person on the crew. The bomber will claim they're the most important person on the crew. And the pilot will claim that they were the most important person on the crew. But the, the, the crew as a unit with teamwork, with intercoms discipline, um, would give themselves the best chance of surviving the, their operations. I mean, I'm glad you brought up Flight Lieutenant Rusty Warman, um, because obviously I've had quite a few conversations with him down the years. And one of the things he said to me that the Lancaster or described it as Lancaster, the queen of the skies, this, you know, fantastic mm. aircraft to fly, always reliable and always brought him and the crew home. But you, you touched on their teamwork, how important it was for every member of the crew to do their job, to support one another. And all of them were vital to that, to getting home in one piece. And having clambered in Lancaster before in what shoes, t-shirt and uh, pair of jeans I like you said I'm, I'm about six foot as well and I absolutely struggled to get around that aircraft I can only imagine how difficult it must have been in complete flying suits um, as you say not an aircraft you'd like to get out of in, in any sort of speed mm. absolutely and um, you know, they're in an evasive corkscrew maneuver as well which Rusty did a number of times um, throwing throwing the aircraft around the <clears throat> around the sky to be trying to get out in in those circumstances, and um, well, as we know, many many airmen did not did not get out. I think we're going to come on and talk about um, some particular incidences uh, a bit later on. But yes, yes, teamwork is is coming. Veterans will always talk about luck being involved in in their operations, and of course, there's an element of luck, but there's also some discipline and keeping a vision, being vigilant of what's going on in the sky around you. Um, it, discipline on the intercom, not having too much chatter uh, taking place, um, keeping your crew alert. Um, all of those will, would, have, would have helped your chances, uh, that's for sure. And, and you do generally seem, see that there is a, a strong bond be between a crew. I mean, the, these guys have been through, they've been to hell and back and they've, and they've managed, managed to survive it. And it's an experience um, that is, is unique to them. Um, and that's why when you, you, you get them together, you can see that they become those young men and they're able to discuss those, those shared experiences together. You touched on obviously that, that vigilance there. I mean, we should probably mention that the, these journeys, not just like your two hour flights across to the continent from here, these guys could be flying what, eight hours plus round trips to the middle of the Third Reich or the, you know, Munich, that direction. Um, they're long trips at the dead of night. And that's asking quite a lot for these guys to keep sharp all that in period of time. Cause obviously adrenaline eventually will wear off. Yeah. It, it, eight hours, nine hours that they could be flying four hours there, four hours back to Berlin, Leipzig, some of the, the, the deep, deeper penetrations. And it, it's, they've got to, they've got to keep alert. Um, certainly the, the air gunners have got to keep alert all that time. And, you know, the captain every now and then maybe just going around the intercom, just checking that everybody, everybody is alert and, and aware of what's going on in their surroundings. And, you can't relax once you come back to this country and the skies over here, the Germans would be, may well have intruders 
intruder night fighters patrolling over airfields. So the vigilance is required um, the whole time that you're, you're on operations. And not even from uh, from the enemy. I think I recall one instance with Rusty where he described coming back over London and getting shot up by his own ACAC. Yeah, so similarly happened to my grandfather in September 43. They, they strayed over London and, um, and, and, <laughs> and knew about it pretty sharpish. But, and, and there are other... Uh, not, not just, There's night, night fighters, you're up against night fighters, you're up against flat enemy flak, but there's collision as well. Veterans who were involved in mid-air collisions, a chap called Dave, Dave Fellows, who's, um, he was a, an air gunner and, and an aircraft came up from cloud underneath and the people in that aircraft just went down and, and no one survived and Dave, Dave's crew did manage to survive, although the aircraft was very, very badly damaged. Um, and um, he, he that was a memory, of course, that stayed with him for the rest of his life. And he would often go out to the the, the memorial where the, the other aircraft crashed to, to pay his respects. And there was that risk as well. We go into uh, when Bomber Command goes back on daylight operations in 1944. Many is the time that an air gunner, mid upper gunner, would be in his Lancaster and another Lancaster would pass overhead and start releasing its bombs. And uh, some aircraft were lost by bombs being released from above. Now, they, they're seeing that in daylight. How many times did that happen at, at night as well? So we're, again, you're throwing in, in the aspects of luck there. But vigilance was absolutely critical for the whole, whole time that you're on an operation. Well, let's, have, let's turn to the operational record of the Lancaster and some of those human stories. I mean, you, you obviously mentioned there that January 41, uh, the Lancaster getting its first test flights, as it were. When did it kind of finally enter into service operationally? So um, the first operation for the Lancaster was a mine-laying operation, uh, which took place 2nd of March 1942, number 44 squadron. Um, much overlooked mine-laying. Um, a considerable campaign uh, by Bomber Command. They called it gardening, planting vegetables is what, how they called it. But uh, there's plenty more research needs to be done on that, no doubt a few books as well. So, um, so yes, March 2nd of March 42 is the first mine-laying operation, and the first bombing operation was on the 10th of March 1942 to Essen. And this is at a time where Sir Arthur Harris has just become Commander-in-Chief. Of, of Bomber Command in, in February of 1942. Um, and he wants to see that expansion of, of his force. Bomber Command was still in somewhat of an existential crisis following the release of what was called the Butt Report back in 1941, which was basically saying that despite what was being um, reported and, and recorded from returning crews, they were, they were being far too optimistic and Bomber Command was not being very effective at all in regard to the results of the bombing. So with this crisis, something needed to be done. So Harris comes in, you get the introduction of the area uh, bombing offensive, and now he can really start to expand his force. He's got the 400 Sterling, he's got the Halifax bomber already, and now here comes the Lancaster. And Harris is smitten by the Lancaster, and, I mean, if he had it his way, he would have just produce Lancasters at the ex expense of all the others, um, if he could. But there needs, there needs to be a period of, of conversion for, to get the crews 
ready to operate uh, on on the Lancaster. So that's going to take some time with, with regard to the expansion. But um, although the sort of numerical expansion in number of aircraft wasn't particularly great in, in 1942, there was a considerable increase in the, in the amount of bombs dropped. I think it was a 44 percent increase in the bombs. Um, that were dropped. That were dropped. Although it, it's still worth mentioning, I think Harris says this in his uh, post-war memoirs. Or it's, there's not much difference between the load of a medium bomber which misses the target and the load of a heavy bomber which also misses it. So it needed to have the the target finding aids that were going to be coming in. So H two S and and Oboe and and, and G elements of G that would help find targets and help help with navigation. So the Halifax, uh, so the Lancaster has become operational. Now it needs to to go in. To, it's already in production, of course. So the, the production is now going to, to scale up. An extraordinary um, manufacturing and, and production process. I, I'm always overwhelmed. I, I think yes, overwhelmed by the scale of production of aircraft that took place. Uh, in this country. A lot of the Lancasters were up at um, in the Lancaster, Great Greater Manchester area, some, some built in, in Canada as well. But um, the, the production levels and the scale of, of growth of producing the Lancaster that then could go into the to the frontline squadrons. So Harris is expanding the, the bomber force and he wants to make a statement at the end of May 1942 with the, the first thousand bomber raid to Cologne in which the Lancaster plays its part and the 73 aircraft uh, take part in that. So all through 1942 his frontline strength is growing, more Lancasters coming in along with the Sterlings and the Halifaxes but he's he's pushing for, for more and more of the Lancasters to get, get involved and then you get into the period of what is called the main offensive and that starts to in, in 1943 with the Battle of the Ruhr, getting at the Battle of Hamburg in July, beginning of August 43, then you're going to go into in the Battle of Berlin. And one of the, the key attributes of the Lancaster was its adaptability as a weapon. And this, there's no real finer example of this than the Dam Busters raid of May 1943, which is part of the Battle of the Ruhr. They're attacking the dams which hold the water that's required by the industry of the Ruhr. So the Lancaster is, is adapted so that it can carry the upkeep, uh, the bouncing bomb, and is able to, to deliver that. And it, I mean, the extraordinary feat of airmanship, an extraordinary feat of ingenuity to be able to fly these aircraft at low level over Germany uh, and deliver them against the wall of a dam to sink and to, to then blow up. I mean, that that certainly um, endeared the Lancaster in, in public uh, perception at the time and ever since, and of course has been immortalised in the, in the film of, of the Dam Busters. So that's one example of the adaptability of the aircraft. Then as we go through uh, into the the, the Battle of Berlin, and when we go beyond that, we're now getting towards the D-Day period. At that, just after D-Day, there's an attack on the Samoa Rail Tunnel by 617 Squadron with the 12,000 pound Tallboy. So it has that capability to, to deliver that 12,000 pound. And then as we progress, we get to the 22,000 pound 
Grand Slam. Um, only the Lancaster had the ability to do that, had the, the Bombay that was capable of uh, all these adapt adaptabilities um, that took place. Well, you mentioned, you briefly touched on there, the, the D-Day landings um, in June 1944 in the Normandy campaign. Obviously, there's a, there's a big build-up for that where Bomber Command strategically is sort of sucked into this away from its um, Harris's bombing campaign of Germany. Uh, maybe you can sort of talk us through the transport plan and were there sort of any personal accounts you've come across or human connections with Lancaster as part of this, cam uh, this campaign period? So, Bomber Command was heavily engaged in the, the Battle of Berlin. Um, there was a raid in Berlin in August 1943 and it um, really escalated into November 43 and went through to the, uh, to the end of March. But in March 44, Bomber Command also carried out its first raid against the Traps Rail Yard at the beginning of March, um, 7th of March 44, uh, as part of what was called the Transport Plan. So key to the success of the Normandy landings was going to be what was called the Battle of the Build-Up. Once a beachhead had been secured and enough men and material had to be landed and advanced inland to counter whatever uh, the Germans did in response to the actual landing. We had to get enough war resource into Normandy before the Germans were able to, to try and, and push the Allies back into the sea. So Bomber Command's responsibility as part of this battle of the build-up was to try and isolate the battlefield from reinforcement. And this was uh, what became the transportation plan. So the rail network that would feed into Normandy through which the Germans would be bringing their reinforcements and bring, bringing their supplies had to be severely disrupted. So key rail targets were allocated to Bomber Command and they were instructed to go and take them out. And this started in March 44. There was a series of experimental, series of what could be seen as, as experimental raids to see as the results of attacking the, these rail yards because they're in, there's a political aspect to this in that they were in built up areas. They're in occupied French areas. Uh, and there was going to be the risk of civilian casualties. Indeed, there were quite substantial um, civilian casualties uh, in attacking these rail yards. Not just, and there was not just attacking the rail yards close to, to Normandy, but also across Northern France, because they didn't want to indicate to the Germans that Normandy was going to be the place of the landing, part of the deception plan, fortitude, rail yards were attacked all across northern France. So in the run-up to D-Day, you get these attacks on all the, the rail yards. And it goes on beyond that as information is coming in where German reinforcements are coming in. There may be information from Enigma decrypts that there's these units that are moving. Bomber Command is able to allocate and target specific rail yards. One story that uh, associated with one of these attacks, um, so 12th, 13th of, of June 1944, Bomber Command is detailed to attack the rail yards at Combray. And 
on that particular night, a, a gentleman Canadian by the name of Andrew Minarski is on a is in a, in a Lancaster bomber. And just after they'd crossed the, the, the coast uh, on this particular raid, and they'd been combed by searchlights, the JU-88 attacks enemy night fighter. Cannon fire rakes the aircraft, and the bomber is engulfed in flames. Both port engines are taken out, and the pilot gives the order for the crew uh, to bail out. So Minarski comes down into the fuselage to escape through the rear door, but he sees his colleague and friend in the rear turret, Pat Brophy, uh, was his name, was trapped. Couldn't get out. His, the, tower, the turret was jammed, and he, he it was unable to rotate to, to his position by which he could escape. So Minarski unselfishly makes his way through the flames to try and help his friend. Tries to use a fire axe to get, get his friend free. Smashing away at the turret, but but unfortunately he can't God, he can't get in and can't can't release his friend. He's Minarski's his suit, his parachute are on fire. And Brophy and the turret realizes that it's hopeless and he tells Minarski to, to back off and go away. And then Brophy would later say that his friend Minarski got to the rear door, paused, saluted his friend uh, before he, he jumped. Minarski's parachute was burnt. He had a hit the ground very, very hard. He was, he was severely burned. His clothes were, were on fire and he would not survive the incident. The Lancaster crashed with Brophy still, in, still inside, but he survived. And after the war, he was able to tell the story of what his friend had done. And this would result in Minarski being awarded um, the Victoria Cross, and justifiably so. And the Canadian Lancaster that flies now is the Minarski, Minarski Lancaster in honour of, of Andrew Minarski. That's just one example of a particular uh, incident. I mean, there, was, there, was, there are so many of these um, over the years that I've I've heard and recounted and, and told and, and published. And of course, there are so many times these incidents would have, would have happened and no one survived and these men were not able to tell, tell of their story. But that's just one incident within part of the, the transportation plan that we're talking about. And the transportation plan, it keeps going through uh, the Normandy invasion, constantly trying to isolate from, from reinforcement. And it, it made a significant uh, contribution to the to the su success of the invasion and the allies were able to win the battle of the build-up and they were able uh, to break out of normandy and i think bomber command doesn't get the credit it deserves for that aspect in, in, res in respect of the the war overall it is it, it is often just seen as um a command that was involved in the the, the, the bombing of germany but it wasn't. The transportation plan and the support to Normandy was actually critical in the success of that, that, that campaign. If they could bomb the rail yards and they could make the German forces take to the roads, for example, then that also opened them up to being attacked by the, the, the typhoons and the, the Mustangs and the, the Spitfires in the, in the ground attack role. Um, or they had to move only at night to try and avoid that. 
So it caused a significant dis disruption. You mentioned earlier the V1 counter-offensive role that Bomber Command played and obviously Lancaster's uh, played as part of that. What, what Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And again, were there any sort of human stories you've touched on in your research that you wanted to highlight it here? Yes, yeah, so uh, quite, in, quite early on in the war, information was coming through to Allied intelligence about the German development of the, the V weapons. Um, and in, in, in terms of our discussion today, we, we, we jumped straight to the Pina Munda raid, 17th, 18th of August, 1943. That was the attack on the German V2 research establishment on the Baltic coast. And that was the, the, the first major counter um, counteroffensive against the V weapons. But then the Allies were noticing that in northern France, there were constructions being made of un well, unusual constructions. But comparison of these with comparison of constructions in some of the northern on the Baltic coast and, and Pina Munda, it became clear that there was the link and it became clear that a V weapon offensive was being planned and got ready for in, in northern France. Um, and we're just going to talk about the, the V1s here, not, not the V2s. There was some V1 development uh, going on at, at Pina Wunder as well. So in, in December 1943, Bomber Command was asked to carry out some trial attacks against some of these particular uh, constructions. Harris was prepared to use his sterlings. He, he wasn't... Um, he felt that he could uh, he could use those, and, and he did instruct 617 Squadron to carry out some uh, an attack as well. And 617 Squadron attacked with Lancasters, and uh, it was marked by oboe, so the oboe marking uh, device, whereby a, a, an aircraft it could be a mosquito would be flying along, and the they would hear signals coming from the United K from, from United Kingdom from two different stations, and they they would be flying on this arc and once they got a certain tone they knew that they had to drop drop the markers and it could be uh, particularly accurate some of these v weapon sites the actual oboe run could be starting on, on the thames estuary and this attack 617 squadron was dropping 12,000 pound bombs they claimed at the time they put in the squadron orb that it was the most accurate attack of the war to date indeed they were very very close to the markers but uh, the markers, it all depends on where, where the markers are. And even though you're using oboe, you're only attacking a small site. So it's quite, um, quite, quite difficult to get there. But those experimental raids were, were carried out. But then in the build-up through coming up in, into D-Day through February through to, to June, there were, Bomber Command was, wasn't involved in any more particular attacks, although the, the, the development of the sites was being monitored. Then you get D-Day, and just after D-Day, 12th, 13th of June, um, the Germans launch uh, the V-1 offensive. Um, not particularly dramatic initially, um, but uh, the Germans sort of recovered the situation and were able to, to escalate it. They were having supply problems because of the transportation plan as well. The supplies that were coming in from Germany um, were causing difficulties in getting uh, getting the V1s uh, in, into northern France. There were two, two systems of delivery of the V1s. There was the, the ski site, what's called the ski site system and the modified 
site system. So initially, um, the Germans were building constructions on the on the ground. Um, so they were like long, long buildings that curved at the end. So when viewed from above, it looked like a ski, and that's where they were storing the V the V ones, and that the ski the curve at the end was if they knew these uh, sites were going to be attacked. So it was to stop blast coming down uh, where the V1s were being stored. But they were very easy to be seen from the air. And, and Bomber Command had, had, had already shown in December 43 and January 44 that these could, could be attacked. So the Germans changed the system to modified sites where they would just have very, very much more simplified sites, just have the ramp. They would have what's called the square building where they could um, uh, prepare the V1 and, and its compass before putting it onto the launch ramp itself so a lot of the, the the system then became that the v1s were going to be stored in in caves for example rather than at the site themselves you had a place called st ludeseron you had new core caves uh, really la montagna rail rail caves where the v, v, v weapons uh, the v1s were now going to be stored uh, and, and bomber command found out about these they were getting information from agents France, they were getting information from Enigma, and there were attacks against these, these particular sites. Then the attacks on, on St. Louis Desserol, which was these underground mushroom caves, they were, they were particularly effective. That was in July 1944. Germans needed to, to move to other places to be able to store their V weapons. And there was a, another um, site called Trossy St. Maximin. So if we, we can look at a specific incident that took place on, on that raid and an example of what happened to a, a Lancaster crew. So on 4th of August 1944, 635 Squadron, based up at Downham Market, um, they were involved in the attack on, on Trossy St. Maximin. Um, and master bomber on that raid was a wing, wing commander Clark. And, but as he approached the, the target, there was considerable flak. Lancaster received damage on the on the bomb run, and then the deputy master bomber was also hit by a flak, um, caught fire and flew into the ground. So the gentleman we're looking at is squadron leader Ian Willoughby Bazalgette, and it, he brought his aircraft in, uh, but that too was hit by flak, straight through the starboard wing, took out both engines, set the wing on fire, another flak hit on the aircraft's fuselage, um, and his, his bomb aimer um, was seriously in, injured. But Bazalgette was able to control his Lancaster using just the port engines, and he went on to release his markers on the target. But the fire is now intensifying. Lancaster is beginning to lose height rapidly. Um, and gentleman by the name of Sergeant George Turner, he was Bazalgette's flight engineer. And in my book, Sledgehammers for Tintax, I, I quote some of what he said about this particular incident. So he, he recalled looking out and seeing this and to quote the starboard wing was one mass of flames with pieces flying off it in fact it was looking more like a skeleton and then another person who was on basil jets aircraft a flying officer doug cameron he's the rear gunner he recalls hearing a tapping on his rear turret door and turned to see the mid upper gunner a flight sergeant leader and he also noticed fuels leaking into the lancaster's fuselage so to quote doug cameron Removing my oxygen mask, I shouted to him to get down to the front and await the order from the skipper to bail out. 
This aircraft is going in and it won't be long. He nodded and moved away. I shut the door and turned the turret to the beam. I could not believe my eyes. The starboard wing was like a herringbone after all the flesh has been eaten off it. I could hardly believe we were still flying. I knew we were a doomed aircraft. Now the situation worsens and a poor engine fails. And going back to George Turner again, and to quote George, turns to Bazajet, you'd have to put it down, Baz, I told him, that we had no chance, only to get out of the aircraft as quickly as possible. With that, he gave the order to put on parachutes and jump. We were just a flying bomb. The rear fuselage was awash with fuel swishing around. It only wanted a spark from the starboard wings to make contact, and we'd all have been blown to bits. The Bazalgette, he orders his crew to bail out. Turner, Godfrey, Chuckle Cameron, the navigator, flight engineer, Goddard, they all obeyed their captain. But there's the seriously injured bomb over Hibbert and the mid upper gunner leader, who, it's believed, had been overcome by smoke and fumes, and they were still in the aircraft. So Bazalgette could have got out. But he may have been unsure if Leader was still in the aircraft. For he knew he may have jumped through the crew, the crew door, but he knew that Hibbert was on board and in no fit state to bail out. So he decided to attempt a landing. The Lancaster lost further height, and as it neared a village, it was seen to turn to avoid houses and a farm before touching down in a field. And Chuck Godfrey was hanging beneath his parachute, saw all of this, and to quote him. He did get it down in a field, about two fields from where I landed, but it was well ablaze. And with all that petrol on board, it just exploded. And the three men still on board were, were killed instantly. Squadron leader Bazalgette, extraordinary courage and bravery in attempting to save the lives of his fellow eminent justifiably uh, was awarded the Victoria Cross uh, for that action. And he's buried in the village of, of Senons, not too near where the actual aircraft crashed. And um, his, his grave is immaculately kept and, and respected very highly by all those who um, are, are know of his story and, and the, the pe people in the village. But another example of an extraordinary act of bravery, um, and this was in the V weapon, the V1 counteroffensive um, that we talked about. It's, um, it's an, another int interesting statistic, I think, that a greater tonnage of bombs was drop on, dropped on V-weapon targets than was dropped on all other targets in the whole of 1942. A greater tonnage of bombs was dropped on V-weapon targets than was dropped on Berlin during the entire war. So you understand the scale of the operations against the V-weapons as well. We've discussed the involvement of the Lancaster in the V-weapon campaign and the transport plan with the Normandy campaign. What other operations was the Lancaster involved in during the latter stages of the war? So you get to the, the end of August 1944 and France is going to be liberated and the Allies are now looking beyond and, and the advance on, on towards Germany. And what's, what's the role of, of Bomber Command in, in that respect? And, and the Lancasters, because the Lancasters are the, the frontline strength of, of Bomber Command is becoming more and more dominated by, by the Lancaster. And there are the, the versatility of, of the Lancaster is allowing for the versatility of the command to, to some extent. Uh, and, you, um, and Bomber Command is, is very much being asked to get involved in, in uh, an oil, the oil campaign, which is one of the most important campaigns that Bomber Command is involved in in, in the Second World War, depleting the, the German oil reserves. Um, 
dramatically uh, in the months, certainly after the, the Norm Normandy invasion, um, making an incredible impact in the ability of, of the Germans to wage war. Some, there's a, um, quite an argument that goes on between uh, Sir Arthur Harris and the, and the powers above him about the use of, of Bomber Command at this, this stage. He's still concerned of the limitations of, it, of the aircraft um, and their operations um, and the powers that be wanting him to focus in. So there's quite a, a discussion <laughs> that takes place there. That's probably um, another podcast could be discussed about that there. But the versatility of the Lancaster is allowing for the versatility of Bomber Command. So if we just look at two raids, for example, that, that are coming towards this, this last year of, of the war, Bomber Command is able to find 617 Squadron and, and 9 Squadron are able to, to attack the Tirpitz, the German, German ship that's holed up in a Norwegian uh, fjord. And by bombing with the tall, being able to carry the Tallboy bomb and being able to drop Tallboy from, from great height and, and take out the Tirpitz and, and capsize it. So an example of a, of a precision attack taking place at high level, carried out um, by the Lancaster. So it has that, that capability. Then, if you, then you go into to 1945 and the continuation of the, the area uh, bombing offensive. And in February 1945, there is the, the attack on, on Dresden. Uh, Lancaster's attacking Dresden with some, some mosquito marking that, that takes place. As we all know, it's a very, very controversial raid. Was it necessary? Was, was, was it a military objective? Some historians will argue it was. Was it necessary at that stage of the war? On a strategic level, some historians will argue um, that it wasn't. But it was a certainly a demonstration of the uh, ability of, of Bomber Command and the Lancaster and the devastation uh, that it could cause. So you've got those, you've got the Tirpitz and then you've got, and you've got Dresden. And then if you go, go beyond that, you get to a sort of humanitarian side of the Lancaster uh, in respect of Operation Manor, the delivery of food to the starving uh, Dutch population. The Dutch people revere Bomber Command aircrew and the Lancaster. Uh, and what it did for them, it gave them hope uh, under the time of occupation, and it also delivered food to them at a time when they were they were starving. And you've got a humanitarian aspect to the Lancaster in respect of Exodus, the bringing home of, of prisoners of war. Indeed, my grandfather, he'd been a prisoner of war for almost a year, and uh, he was picked up uh, in the Lancaster and, and to be brought back to this country, although he does say in his his diary that um, he had to correct the guys because I think they had him, they had them heading off way too far north <laughs> as he was as he was coming back. So he, they had to make that that correction. So the, so what the Lancaster represents in you know, sort of that last year of the war, the the considerable impact it has um, as the Allied uh, forces are advancing, its ability to carry out precision attacks against the Tirpitz, the controversy about Dresden, from a historian's point of view, from a storyteller's point of view, it, it enriches that that story and that, that iconic nature of, of the Lancaster. And by by the end of the war, the Lancaster has carried out 
looking at the statistics, 156,000 sorties, just over about 600,000 tonnes of bonds, some 3,400 or so are lost from the 7,377 um, that were built. One of the things we briefly discussed before coming on air was the upcoming feature documentary looking at the Lancaster. Perhaps you can tell us when this is out and a little bit more about all this, as I'm sure many of our listeners will be keen to learn more. So in May, we've got a film coming out called Lancaster, the feature documentary. And I was actually um, up at Coningsby at the BBMF a few years ago with Charles Clark, uh, Commodore Charles Clark, who was a, a Lancaster bomber and became a prisoner of war shot down on a um, on a raid in 1944 and the guys at that time they were filming for Spitfire and <laughs> took the opportunity to say well uh, here's a, a, an obvious follow-up to Spitfire is to go on to Lancaster but very much a different story um, the Spitfire is the perceived as the defender of the nation against an, an aggressor whereas Lancaster is much more complex in, into the story of of bomber command you're getting into the morality of it and going on on the offensive so much more complex but once spitfire was it was a great success and then um the producers and the, the directors david fairhead and anthony palmer started to look towards lancaster and it was key for for obvious reasons that we needed to interview veterans as soon as possible so fortunately before the pandemic hit we managed to get 38 interviews with veterans into in the can. Um, and although the film is called Lancaster, the Lancaster, as I said, it's I mentioned it as, a, as an icon being that window into the kingdom, if you take that sort of like religious aspect to it. Well, the Lancaster, the ones that's flying now, the BVMF Lancaster and the Lancaster in Canada, they are giving us a window into the experience of Bomber Command. The BBF Lancaster commemorates the 55,573 aircrew of Bomber Command, so of all the aircrafts, Mosquitoes, Sterling Halifaxes, um, and the Lancaster. So the Lancaster feature documentary that's coming out, it's our window into the experience of Bomber Command. So the 38 veterans are um, Hamden's, the Wellington aircrew, the Sterling Halifax, but the, the, the Lancaster story is the canvas upon which we can we can paint this. And then during the pandemic, unfortunately, John Dibbs, the extraordinary air-to-air -air photographer, has been able to work with the BBMF to, to produce some, some phenomenal footage. The guys have been put together a wonderful musical score. They, they recorded a, uh, a choir down at, uh, at Farnborough in, in the wind tunnel there, and you get that magnificent sound. So this is going to be quite a, I think, I'm biased because I'm involved with it, but it's going to be quite an extraordinary documentary and that comes out in, in May. Uh, I think you can buy DVDs now and then I think there's going to be a limited sim cinema release as well. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I look forward to that. I remember watching the Spitfire film oh, documentary in the cinema and as you say, it was such a moving piece about such an iconic aircraft. I think hopefully uh, this will certainly do some justice for Lancaster as well and all those crews that uh, flew in it and all those ground crews that keep it operational as well. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's because um, it's, it's, it's a different story to, to Spitfire, Lawrence. It's I mean, I'm, you, you, what the Spitfire is, and that 
that, that freedom and, and defender of the nation. Lancaster is an offensive war winning and it's it's very controversial. And what I like about David and Anthony's approach to this, they're not trying to provide an answer to Bomber Command, if you know what I mean, in regard to the moral aspect to it. They're giving the veterans the opportunity to tell their story. And then you as the viewer, you can make your own mind up. There's, there's no there's no talking head historians in this documentary. There's some narration we've got, but there's no talking head historians. So, so you can view it, you can hear what these men say. They're ordinary men, you go meet these veterans. They were lads like we all were once, um, with their hopes and, and aspirations. I've never met a veteran who entered into Bomber Command to be a sadistic killer. They wanted to, to fly, they wanted to defend the, the nation, they were looking for an adventure. Um, uh, that, that's the aspects of, of their motivations uh, to be there. And, and this film, I think it com certainly comes across in that and we explore that. Well, Steve, I really look forward to watching that. And obviously a big thank you for coming on today. It's been absolutely, utterly absorbing, learning more about the Lancaster and obviously its role during the Second World War. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Also a big thank you to Steve for joining us today. I'll be sharing some archival images Steve has kindly provided us with. You can check these out by finding us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube at World's Nation and also Instagram at World's Nation HQ or by visiting our website www.nation.com where for each episode I post further information and useful links including these archival photos. And if you wish to help support the World's Nation podcast please do subscribe and leave us a review as it's always greatly appreciated. Alternatively, you can go to our Patreon page patreon.com slash www.nationhq a link for this is in the podcast bio below and there you can discover more about how you can get involved with the podcast including being able to have your sound topics you wish me to cover in future episodes and even sneak previews where we look ahead so you can have the opportunity to throw in questions you like me to put to our guest speakers looking ahead to the next installment here on the world's nation podcast we'll be hearing from veteran ernest booth about his experience during the second world war including discussing his best friend, Jerry Taylor, who took part in the commando raid on Saint-Nazaire on the 28th of March, 1942. Anyhow, until next time, this is Lawrence Waller signing off for this episode of the World's Nation podcast. Mm -hmm.